to The Sacramentalists, a podcast where the ancient Christian faith is brought to bear on issues prevalent in modern culture. We're your hosts. I'm Father Wesley Walker. I'm Father Creighton McElveen. I'm Father Hayden Butler. And we are very excited to be back for another season of The Sacramentalists. Gentlemen, how was your break? How was Christmas? How was New Year's? How is Epiphany season going so far? When you say break, what exactly are you talking about? <laughs> break from the podcast. Yeah, okay, okay. Uh, yeah, not this a break. This is actually what we do all day, every day. This is our main job. Exactly. I mean, we could try to make that happen. Come on. Come on, listeners. Get us there. <laughs> well, yeah, other than driving my uh, friends and close ones crazy, you know, uh, with all my uh, incessant rambling and uh, and all that, that, because I didn't have this outlet. You know, so they're they're glad I'm back to podcasting now. So, yeah, I think Wesley Hill once tweeted that a podcast is when two white men love their opinions very much. <laughs> hey, we're three. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. So, well, good. Well, good breaks then. Or for priests, though, of course, it's a busy season. Um, but I assume services went well at your parishes. Oh, it was great. The the, the children's pageant was its usual brand of chaos, uh, and um, you know, we had to, you know, do some ad hoc wrangling uh, of a couple of the cows. Uh, but other than that, you know, uh, it, it was uh, uh, not too, there's no, no disasters this time. No one nearly dropped the baby Jesus. And so it was, it was great, you know, a win. You got to like, you got to love a win at a Christmas pageant. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah, we, we, ours was good. We, uh, we had a good time. Uh, obviously my first, uh, first Christmas at St. Hilda's, which brings its own, you know, uh, new experiences. Anytime you're in a new parish for major feast days and holiday seasons. Uh, but yeah, it was really good. We had, uh, we actually had a lot of visitors. We had people that found us through our website, uh, which is great. Um, good engagement on our socials and uh, in the neighborhoods. So I'm hoping the kind of trend continues and the 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 kind of um energy and momentum can can kind of keep pushing us forward um listeners if you're ever in atlanta and you want to come visit please do we'd love to have you uh so yeah i think it's i think it's good i've got a lot of plans for next christmas though nice yeah it takes a couple cycles you know you get in and you realize what you want to do and what you want it to look like and yeah it's it's but once you get it down it's it's awesome so that's great. That's great. Yeah, I feel like I don't know about both of you, but I feel like 2023 was a great year just because uh, people were kind of getting out a little more. And so where people I feel like 2021, 2022, even though uh, the numbers, COVID numbers were starting to go down, they weren't quite people weren't quite come just go visit churches at the same rate. But 2023, I really saw an uptick in visitors and participation and all that. So that has been really nice to see. Yeah, I think it's generally speaking, people are a little bit more interested in trying new churches now than they were, uh, which is a good thing for everybody. Yeah. I also read some interesting studies recently about Gen Z coming out of COVID and how they're more likely to go to church than they were mm-hmm. three, four years ago, which I think is also encouraging. And we've seen that at St. Paul's uh, at our parish. We've got a number of kind of younger millennial Gen Z types who started coming. So that's been kind of cool. So maybe th- maybe the doomsday predictions aren't quite as bad as as they're always made out to be. I think well, Gen- 
generally speaking, people just want to be in a in a good place with good community, and it's a you know a positive place in the world, yes. especially after the you know kind of hellish few years that the world has experienced post you know with COVID and then post COVID. So, speaking of hellish few years, let's talk about the rapture and tribulation. <laughs> Lead in there it is <laughs> elegant segue. <laughs> So, no, for our first episode back, we have decided we want to tackle the issue of eschatology. Um, for those of you who are members of the Communion of Patreon Saints, we always invite you to join our Discord. And if you're a member of our Discord community, kind of as we're beginning a new season, um, we always ask what are some episodes that you might be interested in or some topics that you might be interested in. And so one of our listeners, Jeff, who always has a lot of questions and a lot of good ideas for stuff, um, suggested that we do an episode on eschatology, specifically focusing on the second coming. He asks questions like, is such a thing ever going to happen? Has it already happened? Uh, will it be literal? Will we blow up ourselves before Jesus comes? Uh, how can we maintain hope and faith when it's been 2000 years and skeptics keep asking when he's coming? So um, we thank Jeff for uh, for submitting these questions. I think this is a this is a really interesting topic and one that we have not really touched a, on a whole lot on the podcast. I know we've talked about the beatific vision a little bit. Um, we had David Billy Hart on for his um, for his book, which is about eschatology, but of a sort of different um, flavor than what we're talking about today. And so, um, yeah, so I think this will be a very interesting topic. Yeah, and I, th I think we've brought up some points in, in past episodes about sort of individual eschatology in the sense of we've talked about purgatory. Okay. We've talked about, uh, you know, kind of broadly speaking, judgment. We've talked about uh, heaven and hell to some extent. Um, but I think a, a, a fuller treatment of eschatology and sort of uh, the classical Catholic position on eschatology as it relates to so many flavors that we mm -hmm. see in uh, the kind of Christian landscape today is no bad thing to jump in on, especially at the beginning of the year where we just had Advent and we got to talk about some of these things uh, because you can you can really see with the lectionary readings at Advent that the kind of four topics are the four last things, which are death, judgment, heaven, and hell. But probably a good time of year to do it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I uh, I last year did a, a series in our newsletter on the four last things, and that was I think hopefully people found that to be interesting enough. So perhaps as we before we get into specifically Christian ideas about the last things and and various proposals of of how we as Christians might deal with some of the scriptures that that deal with uh, eschatology, we might um, want to briefly zero in on what things were like when Jesus comes onto the scene. So what were Jews expecting? And of course, we can't ask that in a singular fashion because Judaism was never a sort of monolithic religion. There's always been different sects and different groups within Judaism that have different, sometimes very different ideas about these things. And so um, perhaps we could talk a little bit about Judaism and its uh, surrounding cultures and then its internal kind of conflicts between different sects. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, in some ways, a good place to start is in, in terms of the study of religion, there, there are really very few religions in general that, that don't have some conception of, of end times or uh, where the person goes after death. Um, that's a pretty universal 
focus point for religions. Um, and in terms of kind of the the cultural network around ancient Judaism, uh, ancient Near Eastern eschatology is really typically sort of looked a lot like, like let's say the Greek eschatology. There is a place of departed spirits. Um, it's kind of, you know, not great. And it's also kind of, you know, not so bad. It's It's sort of in between. There's not tons of hope. Um, you may get some more of that in terms of, say, like, there are some Egyptian conceptions of uh, the kind of journey that the Ka takes towards good goodness, towards some in- encounter with, like, Osiris. But in kind of a broad, generalized position, um, departed spirits go somewhere. And in Judaism, you can kind of see a similar thing with Sheol. Um, uh, similar to the the Greek notion of Hades, um, where instead of there being a particularly like a god in charge of Hades, um, within Judaism and Old Testament religion, uh, it's very clear that the God of Israel, the you know Lord of Lords, King of Kings, is in charge um, of that experience. Um, but really, the kind of main position you're going to find is is to some degree follow the commandments here and now and um you know reward and or punishment is really going to kind of happen here and now within the context of you following god's will um or you know his commandments think of like um you know the psalms that talk about the righteous man or the foolish man the evil man proverbs ecclesiastes deals with these sorts of things um and then once you once you get to the time of Christ things things have certainly kind of moved and developed especially centered around passages in like Isaiah where we start getting this sort of messianic coming kingdom this talk about uh resurrection of the dead and that becomes a little bit more normative an experience and then the the separated kind of parties within Judaism of Pharisees believing in a resurrection of the dead Sadducees not believing in a resurrection of the dead. Uh, so they're sad, you see. Got to throw in the pulpit joke. I don't want to be a sheep. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then the sort of, you know, more fringe communities, like, say, the Essenes, which are really concerned with uh, end times and sort of apocalyptic literature uh, and keeping commandments and calendars to ensure that the, the kind of ap- apocalypse comes um in our in our lead up to this episode we were talking and joking around and i said that the sadducees are sort of the mainline protestants of their day the uh the pharisees are sort of normal and this and the scenes are like the prepper you know extreme baptist dispensationalist who's like ready for the end times right now yeah and there's this idea of sort of retreating away from organized and institutionalized religion into a place very distant from those things to make sure that that community is prepared to do the preparation uh, to sort of in a sense usher in that time it's like it's like monastic dispensationalist baptist theology yeah yeah Yeah, there's i mean there's a there's a clear sort of monastic parallel and in, in, in some ways with the Essene communities of, yeah. of, you know, moving away from earthly goods and things like that. Um, but really you kind of have that kind of breakdown with there is a resurrection. There isn't a resurrection uh, within Judaism. 
but I think given the uh, the kind of Old Testament data, given the experience of ancient Near Eastern religion, and given the fact that you know Second Temple Judaism has a very clearly defined uh, messianic expectation, the Day of the Lord approaches. Uh, the the predominant position is that there is going to be a resurrection uh, to new life, and within the context of of you know we can say rabbinic Judaism by the time our Lord um, gets there, there is it's a sort of national eschatology. Being a part of the nation of Israel is really the important thing. Outside of that, there's not much concern for the individual or for other nations and other religious. Uh, experiences. Um, and it's not that those things are kind of ignored. They're just not talked about. Like, it's just not a concern. Um, so I, I think the intertestamental period leading into the New Testament era, um, there's definitely sort of that messianic expectation, which then gets built upon and fleshed out in a really, um, I think consistent and satisfactory way in the sort of New Testament eschatologies we get. And and you do see all three of those perspectives come to bear on Jesus and his ministry because he upsets all three of them in different ways. So you can think about when John the Baptist is in prison and he sends the messengers to Jesus and he goes, are you the one that's coming or should we expect someone else? I mean, I, I think I certainly believe John the Baptist has faith in Jesus because from the beginning, he's the forebearer. But I do think he's grappling with some Essene related ideas. Jesus is hanging out with sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes. And this kind of puzzles John, I think, because he's he does tend more towards the Essene view. Uh, the Pharisees uh, seem to not really understand what Jesus is doing. He's not coming as a national deliverer. He's not coming... Um, you know, to, to defeat the the Romans the way that they're kind of expecting. And the Sadducees, with their kind of lack of belief in resurrection, I think also have a tough time. And it's interesting that only Jesus can make the Sadducees and the Pharisees kind of work together. He gives them a common enemy um, that they can then uh, try and trip him up with. So I do think that's interesting that um, while Jesus certainly plays in some of those frameworks he very much is disjunctive with them and at, in, in, at least in terms of holistic theories i think another element to, to add in there too is our is the the progress in in this idea of the afterlife um, um which is which is always a murky uh, kind of concept that's piecemeal in the old testament but uh you also have the development beyond sheol of like this of, of being covered of being hidden away um and then you have a kind of subdivision of this as we get into the intertestamental and then in the new testament era of um okay a kind of a maybe a, in dialogue with um certain hellenistic ideas you get this um notion of the, the of like abraham's bosom and you get this idea of gehenna that starts to develop which are later developments in this in this idea of the intermediate state or 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 just the the plain old afterlife um, that suggests that there's a continuity between the conduct of life that is maybe visited in one's uh, afterlife too um, so by the time of, of of jesus we get uh we get a little bit of a of an inflection on the idea that your right your covenant righteousness or covenant infidelity is visited upon you in some way in the course of your four score years or your three score in 10 years. Um, and uh, and instead we get this idea that, yeah, you have, for example, the rich man 
who had all the outward trappings of, of prosperity and blessedness in life, and yet is is damped um, uh, in, in the in, when it, when it, when he enters uh, Sheol, uh, and so he and he enters this this place reserved for the unrighteous, which is you know is distant from the righteous, and so I think adding into that too, you know, there's a, there's that idea of the, of the continuity be, uh, through the veil of death, um, and th that and that gets brought into it too, um, and then I, I would only add to your your excellent kind of um, survey, Father Creighton. Um, uh, of the of the kind of contextual and ancient Near Eastern world um, is that there's also uh, it seems to be there's more of a tendency uh, and a more of a closeness between um, more what we might see the Egyptian um, notions of um, righteousness judgment and the con and the state of the afterlife versus maybe like a Mesopotamian view of it um, which tends to be I think a little more erratic um, in the up north um, and a little uh, a little bit more haphazard and you can see. Um, there's a lot. There's a lot of more unknowability about, um, you know, how the gods will treat um, someone, um, even if they're doing all the things that God told them. They might still like get trashed for it, you know. And there's a lot more chaos involved in that. And then it seems to be there's much more resonance between um, uh, Jewish imagination and Egyptian ma imagination, where in Egypt there's much more of a sense of no, like the the will of the gods is a, a discernible thing. It's a it's in some ways a revealed thing, and if one is walking in harmony with it, one can expect a true judgment on the other side of it. That this isn't going to be a kind of trap door that suddenly gets sprung on you, saying like, yeah, you did everything I told you, but there were things I didn't tell you that now you're on the hook for and um, and interestingly enough, I think uh, in some even like later Christian, um, you know, views of, of the afterlife of the judgment, um, we can inadvertently retreat from a, a full and robust Christian uh, view of these things and actually retreat into maybe even more of like a Babylonian and, uh, and Mesopotamian view where um, God, God's, God's, you know, um, you know, you know, final redemption of even people who availed themselves of all the of all the ways that God had revealed himself and all the discernible means of grace um, can still find themselves in this position where they're just getting trapdoored into hell. Uh, and I think, I think that, you know, that may be um, an adjacent, but very sub-Christian uh, view of that and because it plays into those things that Christians were contending with at the beginning. Hmm. I think that's, I think that's really good. And, and two, like, I think I've just, as a, like, a person who's a student of religion kind of in a, in a academic sense, it is interesting within, like, say, Egyptian eschatology, there is an immediate judgment post-death. Um, the ka is weighed. Yep. Um, and so... Against ma'at, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And and the, the kind of notion of ma'at with, like, order and justice and righteousness uh, versus sort of disorder and chaos and, you know, your actions in your life, did it bring order or did it bring chaos? You will be judged accordingly. Um, there's, there's not a sense of hope, I would say in sort of Egyptian, um, afterlife experiences, because it's, it, there's a lot of technique, a lot of kind of mechan mechanical, uh, realities to it. Like make sure you know the right spells and the right charms, make sure people give you the right food. And if you're a poor person who can't afford a tomb or can't afford those particular things, you're kind of screwed. <laughs> um, and so there, there's, and even then it's like, you still have to go on this journey and it can be good or bad, even if you're a righteous individual and perhaps you'll reach sort of a uh, sort of blessed experience, but you may not, or it may take a long time. Um, and I think that's one of the interesting things that you get 
speaking of kind of eschatology in, in contrast with another religion, at the time of Moses, um, when the Israelites are engaging with the Egyptians in a really direct way, uh, God is very clearly telling them there is hope on the other side of this. And the experience of wandering in the wilderness and uh, moving towards the promised land in a physical sense really acts as sort of an, a, a parallel experience or a foil at least to uh, the sort of Egyptian experience that they probably knew better than their own Hebrew right. experience at the time. Um, and so they're, you know, God saying, yeah, you, you messed up. So we're going to wander a long time in the desert. Um, but there's ultimately hope on the other end of it. Whereas maybe what you're used to thinking in terms of your experience in the afterlife is you might just wander around for a while. And there really isn't this, this fulfillment of promise that you get with um, the Exodus. And so I, I think that that plays in pretty heavily with the Old Testament um, Jewish experience of their their kind of thoughts on the afterlife is we we are moving towards something. We are moving towards a fulfilled promise. And as long as we are we are faithful and as long as we follow the commandments and we worship God according to the way he's revealed to us, um, then there is going to be uh, we're not going to be trapped toward, like you said, we're not we're not just kind of left at the whim of a, of a capricious deity. Um, we are bound by blood in a covenant with God who promises things and then fulfills those promises. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Another, uh, you know, thing I think we should bring out in this is, um, and especially as we are, are drawing, uh, drawing out a sketch of, of Jewish eschatology at the time of Christ is um, this concept of vindication um, which which plays very heavily is there's the expectation is that um, that God will be vindicated against those who foolishly said in their heart there is no God um, and who acted that way both in a both in a local and in a kind of national way right the kings of the earth but then also the the foolish man down the road the with the wicked in your community um, who 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 who, who kick it into the teeth of the of those trying to uphold covenant righteousness um, vindication is. Is this idea that of that, that hinges on that that hope, right? Ultimately, but also um, obliges one to a kind of patient waiting um, for um, what God has promised to prevail, even um, and especially in the midst of like overwhelming um, sometimes evidence to the contrary, right? Why do the wicked seem to flourish like a bay tree, right? In one moment, um, and then the idea is that even but even though they do, they they're they're gone the next, and their memory is gone with them, right? And um, and that shaping the imagination as well, but specifically vindication in the land becomes, uh, by the time of Christ, uh, significant, right? After the example of like uh, what we read on Easter Eve, right, of, of like Ezekiel 37, of, of some sort of rising from this and being um, raised again to for life in the land. Um, and so that's helpful for us to maybe draw that apart from a an idea of a merely spiritual ex eschatology as well that the jewish hope was for an embodied life in the land um, however that would then go on to happen and whomever would be experiencing it the idea of a kind of merely spiritual existence or spiritual afterlife was um was not central it's not not a consensus at all mm -hmm. it was more of a greek 
Yeah, I think that parallels well to the the idea of the day of the Lord in in the Old Testament, um, or the kingdom of God, de- depending on how how you sort of look at look at that. Uh, that gets played out later on, kind of around the time of Christ, where we're sort of used to to saying, you know, at the time of Christ, the Jewish people were expecting a a Messiah who was going to come and establish a a physical kingdom there defeat the enemies of the nation of israel and establish a sort of theocracy theocratic sort of entity here now you know a political reality a a physical reality the original christian nationalism (laughs) (laughs) yeah Yeah. kingdom yeah yeah and and you can definitely like that's true insofar as you know there are definable moments in Jewish history where we see this happening with, um, you know, particular popular revolts with the, uh, the zealots who our Lord interacts with. Um, We see that being a definite thread at that time. But I think that that is built on and playing on this idea and maybe taking it too far, but playing on this idea that when you see an Isaiah or uh, in Ezekiel or, or, or other places, um, specifically, and, and maybe even Daniel, um, the idea of the day of the Lord and, you know, with wisdom or apocalyptic literature, there is this idea that he is the king of kings. He is coming to establish a kingdom. And there's also with that an understanding of sort of recreating the world, of bringing a new creation into being as a result of the day of the Lord. And that the people of Israel, and then later in the New Testament, uh, Israel, the Israel of God, the people of God uh, are part of that process that we are, you know, kind of recapitulating the fall of Adam and Eve and sort of ignoring their responsibility in the garden to here and now um, kind of expanding the borders of of the new garden, which is the, the kingdom of God, the day of the Lord. And that has a very embodied reality to it. Um, and that in Christian eschatology, we we talk about the uh, life of the world to come. There is a new heaven and a new earth. There is there is going to be, uh, in a way that we can't perfectly describe, um, but you know we will be embodied, and our experience with God is going to be embodied. And the experience of the life of the world to come is not simply our souls returning to the divine to be absorbed by the divine or our souls just floating around sort of in harmony with the divine. But there really is like a a tangible reality to it. Perhaps we should move into talking a little more explicitly about some of the Christian frameworks for discussing these things, just like uh, Judaism had multiple sects with differing eschatological visions. So the church has always had sort of competing eschatologies. Uh, some of those are newer than others, but still the, from the beginning, there's not really a single coherent system that the church says, okay, this is it. I mean, you know, the apostles creed will say that we believe Jesus will come to judge the quick and the dead. We believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting, but those are really broad statements. And so what does that actually look like? So over time, Christians have divided into a few different camps. So if you were to take a theology course that maybe had a a, a section on eschatology, there would probably be four views that you would have to look at. The first being something called idealism, 
which is that a lot of the eschatological passages in scripture are not really about any particular event that will happen in history so much as the kind of allegory of struggle between good and evil and uh, God's goodness over uh, Satan's evil and those kind of things, uh, those themes. And certainly um, when we read those texts, there is a sense in which, especially, I don't know how you all handle a book like Revelation, but uh, I do in some ways default to that mode of interpretation of like, well, there's a lot of things this could possibly be about. So w it, it's a, it's a helpful way of, of maybe especially pastorally being able to draw out meaning in the text that can be relevant to a reader at any moment in history without uh, getting into too many charts or, uh, or, you know, weird schemas, which we'll talk about in a second. Um, a second, well, it, it, unless anybody has anything to add about idealism. I think, you know, maybe to, to just say, yeah, it's, it, there is a, there can be uh, an interpretive tendency to take the, uh, the, the features of a, of a genre of writing um, and to, and to over-realize them, uh, you know, in one's interpretation. Um, I think this is especially difficult with apocalyptic writing because it's so rare in the scriptures. Um, it, it represents a very um, a very infrequent genre of the scriptures, and so the reading rules for it are um, just less often applied. And then also, um, there's just a lot less data by which to kind of derive a sense of what those reading rules are. And, and, that, that's, and I, it's helpful to remember. And to piggyback on that, you know, apocalypse is different than eschatology, yeah, because apocalyptic is about revealing what's there or unveiling what's there so we can think of the mass as apocalypse right because there's all this unveiling and unveiling that goes on during the mass but um because of that one can see some of the attraction of an idealist reading of a book like revelation because john is writing that book for christians in the in his day and so there is a kind of unveiling of saying hey look there are spiritual mechanisms undergirding the reality that you're experiencing now and so within that um, worldview, then you can find some hope because you can be aware that God is really in control of all this and it's moving in the right direction and all that. So one doesn't have to necessarily have a super spelled out eschatology in this system so much as a general hope that good prevails over evil. Um, and that does, there, there does seem to be some evidence that this is what John is interested in doing, at least in a book like Revelation. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I like the idea too, that as, as we encounter uh, sort of John's apocalyptic vision in uh, Revelation, we also have to take it within the context of the kind of um, like theodrama that John is doing within his other texts that, you know, kind of his purpose as a gospel writer, his purpose as a theologian, his purpose in, um, you know, his uh, epistolary sort of revelations are, are yeah. yeah, they're, 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 they're pastoral and they're moving people into an encounter with Christ at a particular level in a particular mode. And so he, in a sense is everything he's doing is unveiling, right? He's going into the, to the account of our Lord's life in the gospel of John and pulling back the veil and saying, here's what this means. It signifies this, it relates to this. And then putting the veil back on and saying, but you have to understand this through the life of the Holy Spirit, that there is this enlightenment, this um, this gift that comes in in kind of interpreting it. So I think it's like a, a, a whole. And I'm kind of borrowing that idea from, from Raymond Brown um, mm -hmm. when he talks about reading John 
as as a whole rather than kind of piecemeal um, because it all relates to its kind of predecessor in a sense like john's unveiling theologically of what christ is doing and what it means and everything is the only way you can really kind of understand and engage with revelation um because you know john 6 understanding the eucharist is how we're going to ex- understand the lamb and the lamb that is slain and the altar and everything that's going on in this sort of uh eucharistic drama unfolding in revelation so i think that's important to kind of to understand um and it's also you know i think we kind of do this with atonement paradigms as well where there's really kind of no single paradigm in the early church that we can kind of point to that's you know prevailing over another it's understanding that you know saint uh saint paul or what's going on in the gospels is attempting to describe and to address a mystery so we're gonna we're gonna engage with it that way we're gonna kind of understand that a mystery we can come at it from different perspectives and in different ways um, but we're not going to have like a fully fleshed out uh this means this and relates to this every single time approach uh when we deal with visions and imaginations of eschatology in uh in the new testament yeah so in some ways it's maybe hard to even say idealism is it's is always a unique camp or mutually right. exclusive with other camps so much as it can be a a feature of anyone's hermeneutic that is trying to carefully read some of these passages that might be that might pose problems or 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 in come out it, it may be a posture more than it is a particular set of beliefs um so there is a, a camp within uh, christian theology that uh, that actually doesn't necessarily look forward to the fulfillment of eschatology so much as it looks backwards. This was what we might call preterism. Um, And there are two different kinds of preterism. There's partial preterism and there's full preterism. Uh, Partial preterism, well, actually full preterism might be easier to explain first. Full preterism says that basically all of the future predictions about second coming and, and tribulation and all these things are fulfilled mainly around the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And so there is no uh, kind of future expectation in a really hyper preterist or full preterist scenario. I mean, we're in the sort of age in the end times, which, you know, I don't know if this is all there is, then uh, that's kind of a little depressing in my opinion. (laughs) But, um, but I think most Orthodox Christians these days would be some, what of a partial preterist, which is to say much of the, much of the talk about, coming um, or judgment or tribulation is fulfilled in the 70 AD destruction of the temple, but that there is still a second coming later. Um, So I think like maybe N.T. Wright might be an example of someone who kind of leans this way a little bit. Yeah. And with partial preterism, I mean, it's effectively saying some of the things that you can point to historically that, that correlate to something in say revelation has already happened. Uh, right. And the experience of the communities writing a given book or a set of books in the New Testament uh, impacts how they understand uh, a, a sort of eschatological vision. And so I think partial preterism is kind of the, for the vast majority of Christians, kind of the de jure opinion, uh, as, but also how it relates to other things. Like, you know, there is still a spiritual reading of these things, i.e. idealism. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... I, I think some combination of those two is the prevailing opinion. 
Yeah, no, and, and to add to that, it, it seems like partial preterism, uh, you know, it, it maintains a foot in the door of necessary, like necessarily saying these things have a historical dimension to them and that they like we should expect them to have a, a point in time um, at which at which the at which things take place, you know, that that and I think, you know, partial preterism is is, you know, helpful also for reading parts of even the Gospels that people tend to shy away from, like the Olivet Discourse, which mm -hmm. is in all three synoptics, um, and 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 de helping to understand our Lord's words when he he says things like, you know, this, these things will come to pass, you know, in the in this in in, this, in the sight of all of you, right? It, this generation will not pass away until these things take place, and um, and making sense of some of that without without again, um, you know, you know you know cordoning off the new testament and saying like once the 170 ad happened like we're we're in the no man's land with no revelation to guide us here yes I, it, it, it's helpful to be able to put the text in history and it goes very much to what we talked about before in, in reading scripture and on in different senses there is a literal sense in which when john writes to the churches or when Matthew, Mark, Luke are recording the Olivet Discourse, they are writing for a particular group of people at a particular time. And so those words have to, at least at the beginning, be understood as to them. Um, of course, we want to read it as um, as also applicable to us and having things to say to us, but that literal reading has to come first. And so, yeah, we shouldn't, I don't think, necessarily preclude um, at least some of the emphases of a, of a partial preterism. Yeah, and, and I think with it relating to idealism there's there's sort of that's the the conversation that happens between a literal reading of scripture and an allegorical reading of scripture those two things work together um and you know this is kind of what i always want to tell people who are like you can't you can't have an allegorical reading of scripture i'm like you, that means you can't have a literal reading of scripture either right. <laughs> like these things are are part and parcel uh you know with one another and so when we when we have that kind of partial preterist view that history happened you know we know that and we know that these things are written for a time and place as well as being written to us which means when we when we hear our lord say this generation shall not pass away until x we can read that and say and saint john saw it happen or you know whatever but also there's a spiritual dimension in which i too am going to see mm -hmm that fulfilled or i too am going to experience that uh in my life and that's a good thing that's that's how we read scripture yes that's right that's right uh the uh, uh the texts that deal with last things are not only valuable because they give you some sort of blueprint for how the world will end the opposite actually those texts are valuable because they speak to you right now where you're at so i mean it's like what von balthazar does and there we hope where he says whenever Jesus talks about the end times, whenever he talks about judgment, he's talking not about some future date for you. He's talking about you right now, reading the text. And now is really all there is. And so you have to kind of grapple with those texts in the moment that you encounter them rather than putting them off. Mm. Yeah. So there's this idea of preterism. So we look backwards uh, for the fulfillment of some of these verses. But there's also uh, a move towards futurism. And I would say there's some division in the early church. I think especially early on, you do get maybe more of a partial preterism. Uh, but I think as time goes on, you tend to get some sort of futurism. Um, in other words, they're looking forward for the fulfillment of a lot of these verses um, and passages. And, and how that plays out looks 
very different. So in reform circles, you have post-millennialism, which says that there's this millennium, the thousand-year reign of Christ, and then at the end of that is the second coming and the judgment. Um, and so they would say, uh, many of the post-millennials kind of put that now, the church age is that millennium, and so things are you know, supposed to be getting better is kind of their view. It's, um, it, it's out behind a lot of their political theology as well. Um, it's why they have um, kind of very, it's why they can often be very politically active. Um, like Kyperianism, I think, is very much relying on on post-millennial assumptions about the world. Um, and so the, the political sphere becomes a sort of means by which the church can push forward redemption. Um, I don't think that any of us here would uh, find much uh, about post-millennialism very attractive. <laughs> no. Not so much, yeah. I. I sort of view it in a way as a sort of um, it's, it's almost utopian in one sense, yes. which, which, you know, it, to caveat, you, you can kind of have like a, a, a kind of idealist or a utopian sensibility, not in the sense that you want to say, like, we can actually make a utopia. Right. You can be hopeful and say that, you know, we can we can do better or we can be better. Like, that's normal. Uh, but when you start getting that connection between the kind of political and the eschatological, to me, it, it begins to sound like be good enough and Jesus comes back to reward you for being good enough for long enough. Right. Which to me kind of skips out on the data of scripture and tradition. Yes. Like bad things do happen. Things do get worse. And that's okay things ultimately get better but you know it's 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 a different it's a different way of kind of imagining that reality and i do think uh, i think that and i don't want to mean to drag up a whole can of worms again but i do think this does in, inform christian nationalism as a movement which is why there is that kind of eagerness for what i would kind of characterize as an overrealized eschatology you know, they, uh, Jesus is king. We need to make him king right now, which means we have to oppose viscerally things like liberalism that allows room for dialogue and others to be things other than Christian, you know. Um, and I I don't think there's a lot of good fruit in those kind of movements. Um, it's the same impulse as the sort of realized messianic political reality that we see in the sort of early rabbinic period. It's yeah. the same impulse. It's the same thing, just with a different sort of lexicon. And not not to over-psychologize uh, people who might feel drawn to that, but one can understand why that might be appealing. I mean, it, it does give you a sense of maybe control that otherwise is lacking, um, because I think most Christian eschatology does ask us to dwell in a kind of uncomfortable tension that's sort of already not yet um, that is a very prevalent phrase in eschatology. And so uh, when when the onus is on you to bring about this end, there's this feeling of of maybe a higher sense of cooperation or participation um, that, yeah, you've got a little more control than you would have otherwise. Hmm. So there's uh, so that's one form of, of futurism. Another form of futurism is called premillennialism, and there are two forms of it. I, I, I actually think you can find a, a good number of church fathers who lean this way, right? They're looking forward to um, a time when there will be a tribulation, and then at the end of that, there's the second coming, and then there's the thousand-year reign of Christ, and then at the end, there is some sort of last judgment. Um, and so 
it kind of depends on the church father, but it's certainly there. And, and one can see based on a reading of Revelation where that makes some sense and, and this kind of expectation of of a coming again and, and then the millennial reign and then the last judgment. The way Revelation plays lays out the events, that is a somewhat logical reading. But I think, too, it's important to to kind of mention that when you do encounter that in some church fathers, um, it's not the same thing as when you encounter it in, say, uh, kind of 20th century dispensationalism. And that is where their second form of premillennialism comes into play, which is dispensational premillennialists who add usually before some sort of tribulation a rapture. And this yeah. is a very new idea, very new, like within the past 150, 200 years of church history. It, and it's really a small minority of Christians who hold that view, even though they're very loud about it. Um, and 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 maybe in America, it's not a minority, but it, globally it is. It's almost a, an entirely American phenomenon. And so this is what comes out in like the Left Behind series. Um, and this is what I had to learn at Liberty. We actually had the ice skating rink at Liberty was called the LaHaye Ice Center because Tim LaHaye wrote who left wrote the left behind books donated all the money for the ice center at liberty um i had a professor there who when he taught theology and taught us these he said uh, i'm a premillennialist by contract <laughs> so th these this is where you get into kind of like all the intricate charts um you might if you know like the schofield bible um and and the ryrie study bible those those can kind of get a little uh, in the weeds on on these things, but um, so yeah, so the historic premillennialism is very different than the dispensationalist premillennialism, which does read like a sci-fi novel sometimes. Um, and again, I would assume most of us would not <laughs> find much about the dispensationalist view that we would uh, that we would commend. I remember uh, working in at the circulation desk at Biola University um, in the student in the library and. I was, it was a slow afternoon one Saturday and I was rifling around behind the circulation desk and I found this arcane looking box and I opened it and there was a giant scroll inside and this, and then and this like label on the scroll said like God's plan for the entire world. And I'm like, whoa, I'm like, it's the scroll guys. And so I'm like, and they're, and they're, and they're like, we didn't, and you know, unlike the reverence of the, uh, you know, of the apocalypse, we're just like immediately pulling it out and opening it, you know, <laughs> and we're like, we got to know. And it was one of these charts. Yeah. It was, it was, it was this really intricate, like quite beautifully like illustrated, but, but very much this definitive, like step-by-step -step guide to the end of the world. It's like, wow. Okay. Yeah. But th th there's a lot of forms of that. And, um, you know, it's, I think it's a good moment to pause in this conversation and, and you know, draw back to a general tendency in eschatology and is a, like, it's almost entirely what we might call speculative theology. Um, uh, and that's one of the reasons why we go through this really lengthy, you know, um, uh, spectrum of, of beliefs about it. It, it. It's most of what we're going on here is not directly stated and, you know, and it's, piece, it's piecing things together um, and it's, it, you know, and, and it's, uh, you know, I think Archbishop Haverland in his book, Anglican Catholic Faith and Practice, you know, says that there's been much unwarranted overextension of, of theological um, statements on this and uh, without very much scriptural basis. And as Anglicans, you know, it's not, it's not typically our, 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 our theological tendency to do that. 
Um, which is why I think as Anglicans, we sometimes, um, you know, have less to say around conversations of eschatology because um, we, we, in this area, we, we, you know, in area, other areas, we, we, we sometimes break that rule and overextend our, our, uh, our theological speculation. In this way, we, I think, historically have not done that. And, and it leaves us with, again, the four last things that we talk about during Advent and, and a, lot, a, lot, a lot like that. Absolutely. And and there's a sense too in which you know the the baseline perspective um i mean the the creed has an eschatological statement yes we affirm that eschat eschatological statement um in the context of church tradition there is you know eschatological statements that are made within the tradition um and you know we can affirm those statements made within the tradition um, where there's consensus and where there's um, you know a, a sense of unanimity between um, east west church fathers into the present day um, so from an individual standpoint we can affirm things like there's you know a purgation that happens purgatory happens and if you want to call it an intermediate state if you want to kind of make it sound a little different like you know the east kind of makes it a little different sounding and things like that yeah whatever but it's kind of there um and we we can kind of do that with statements on eschatology and and everything but ultimately at the end of the day like we attempt to try to root this in the data that we've received but also do we root this in the fact that we root it in a person right that, that our lord his resurrection and his ascension and his glorification are the basis for the hope that we have of our own and that that has been revealed to us that we um by virtue of our incorporation into him uh you know using saint paul's baptismal theology for instance uh we we become sharers in that um in that you know that that's the foundation of our hope however distant it feels or seems or you know just when will Lord take me? When is this going to happen? You know, um, at the end of the day, he did what he promised and we are, we're going to follow him. That's what, whenever I preach on the Ascension, I always talk about like Christ sort of opens the doors to heaven to us. We ascend with him. We mm -hmm. follow him. Um, that's the point. And so for a very, very basic, basic statement on eschatology, well, we follow him. Right. Father and Creighton think, is a pan millennialist. He believes it all pan out in the end. <laughs> We're here all week, folks. <laughs> Tip your waiter. <laughs> That's the kind of dad joke I like to hear. That's right. Father but, but, dad jokes. Father Creighton, I think you, you you make a great point here with uh with regrounding eschatology, which again is is like when when you get your fresh new systematic theology textbook, you flip right to the, you know, to the to the the big finish. Um, but you know, I think Folks like you know Eric Maskell and 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 you know other kind of grounded theologians like that they they see it as an extension of our doctrine of of Christ and our doctrine of the Church um, and really um, eschatology is is downstream from your Christology and I think even in what we've discussed so far um, you could see the um, Apollinarian impulse uh, the Arian impulse the Nestorian impulse. Um, <laughs> um, and and I think you could see that trickle down into how we think that things are going to pan that pan out in the end, right? But like, what it, really? It's a question of okay, if if the church is Christ's body, what is the church's relationship to time? 
um, and and how and how do we expect that to take shape in time um, as time progresses and or continues at least. Um, and and I think also what do we think the meaning of the Lord's like Paschal mystery is um, in relation to the world and and what the world is and. Um, until we answer those questions adequately, I think you were hinting at that even earlier, Father Creighton, with your, your, your you know, going back to atonement theory. Um, and really all of these things will will deliver us to the plausibility of one or one of these eschatological models is if we have a kind of loose dualist or maybe um, crypto-Nestorian Christology, we're going to see that take effect in how we think, you know, our Lord is redeeming the world and making all things new. So there's one final view that we have not talked about, and it's my personal view, uh, which is the amillennial perspective. And uh, and uh, the reason that it's my view is very much in accord with everything that you've been saying, which is that there is a sort of church age or this symbolic millennium of time. And then at the end, the second coming and the last judgment happen simultaneously, that that they're one and the same. Um, and uh, and again, I think this allow it, it's certainly simpler um, and and it allows uh, allows us to have that kind of hope and expectation without getting into some of these kind of strange charts and intricate schemas that yeah. are probably not productive. Yeah, and and ultimately are are sort of an in, an indulging of the human impulse. Yes, right. So like, I want to know everything. Every human being wants to know everything. If there's a literal roadmap that you can give me that says I should act this way to get this result, I guarantee you present that to the human race. We're going to latch onto it. That's right. And my, my, my investment policy is going to change radically depending on whether this is happening in the next 10 years or not. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's right. Well, I know some televangelists who would happily sell you some gold and or uh, uh, dried food. Yeah, get your get your ten gallon bucket of dried food, man. Yeah, you'll you'll be a king in the in the tribulation. Uh, well, it depends on if you're a pre-trib or post-trib. You know, <laughs> true. I think you know you, you highlight this point about uh, you know the, I think one of the difficulties we get with the amillennial perspective is is we there's a, there's this question of if if Jesus is king, then why does the world look the way it is? You know, in in thinking of this as the kingdom, and yet even Saint Paul, you know, is contending with this issue. You know, we think about that his relationship to the Thessalonians, right, his pastoral letter, saying, "All right, so if Jesus is Lord and the power of His resurrection is is at hand, you know, then why are so many of us dying?" You know, or or like with the Corinthians, right? You know, we get his statement that he must reign until he has set all enemies under his feet, right? Which I think is maybe even supportive of this view, right? And then the find the last enemy that shall be defeated is death. Um, and so they think coming to terms with that, what is the exaltation and the kingship, the coronation of Christ? What is the meaning of that? Then gives you like the ability to understand how kingship can attend things in the world, not always lining, lining up with that. And I think in some in some ways to to address uh, Jeff's sort of kind of the second question um, or the the second and third question that he mentions, which is, what do you do when somebody says, "Well, why hasn't he come back yet?" or "When is he going to come back?" and how then do we relate to it? I think the question um, with a a sort of 
you know, maybe maybe we call the kind of a millennial position maybe a, a or mixed with I, some form of idealism or, or or partial preterism, a sort of Catholic approach to eschatology. Um, what we can say with that is, it's hard and it's difficult uh, as Christians who who desire the beatific vision. We want to be with God. I mean, that that's the point, right? Like, I like. God, you know, and I, I like I like it. I want to be I want to be able to put that on a coffee mug and sell it. I like God. I like God. Oh, uh, you know, but that's a, 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 in, in a very basic way. Like Christians, we want we want this to happen. And we we don't want this to happen out of a disdain for the world in which we live. We want this to happen uh, out of, you know, uh, an affection for um, and a realization of the beauty and the love that God expresses to the world and to creation. Um, so it's not, it's not a sort of, um, it's not like a death cult or like an end of the world cult or something where we're like, just get there to the end and I don't care what happens. That defeats the entire purpose. We have been given uh, responsibilities and duties and obligations and things in this world to do. So do it. Take care of creation. Love your neighbor. Love your family. Do all those things. It's not just a get us to the finish line religion. Right. And because we have those things, the questions of when is he going to come and the the sort of uh, challenge that some may give to say like, well, he hasn't come yet. Like nothing's going to happen. I think those are answered through like love God and love your neighbor. Like those are the things that should be occupying your time and your energy kind of more than trying to predict or prepare. Well, I mean, it is preparing, but predict and, and chart out in, in that sense of preparation, the, the signs and the portences that are going to lead to his eventual, you know, second coming and all of that. I, yeah, I think there's two ways of doing eschatology. And I think this touches on Jeff's question a little bit. There is a kind of escapism that can border on conspiratorial thinking it's it's it certainly manifests itself that way yes absolutely absolutely and that is not healthy or good and so it, it, in in many ways i i would pair the objection he raises when somebody says well jesus hasn't come back yet with maybe uh, marx's critique of religion as being the opium of the people um, that kind of escapist eschatology can become that sort of opium. I don't have to care about the environment. I don't have to care about my community. I don't have to care about my city or whatever because Jesus is going to come back and it'll all get blown up anyways. Uh, that's not a good way of thinking. And so um, if we love God and love neighbor, if we understand the intimate connection between the the golden rule or the the the, the summary of the law, then... I think it will prevent us from doing that. But also, I think whenever somebody asks this question, I, it's important that we we point them to the past, that right. we can look at how God dealt with Israel faithfully. He didn't leave them out to dry. He delivered them from Egypt. And of course, the same objection could have been raised by them up until the moment of the Exodus. Well, if right. God's real, why are we here? 
Why are we still in bondage? Why yeah. are we making bricks for this? The exile, same third thing with pyramid the exile. or whatever. Yeah, uh, and you do get this, right? I mean, Habakkuk is very much the prophet who right. wrestles with these questions and says, I see how things are and I, I don't understand, but I'm going to wait like a watchman at the wall for your answer. And um, and so we look to the past, we look at Israel, the way God dealt with Israel. And I think, of course, we can listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, which is that, look, if the resurrection didn't happen, then all of this is crazy anyways. And and it's all crazy. It's all false. Right. Uh, and uh, and so we 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 focus in on God's faithfulness in the resurrection. And then I think we can even point to our own spiritual autobiography. So we look at Israel, we look at Jesus, and we look at ourselves. What has happened to me because of the resurrection? And this was a common apologetic approach. You know, Athanasius talks about that. He says, hey, look at all the lives that have been changed by the gospel um, in his day as, as evidence that it is true, that it is a living and working thing. And so um, if God's been faithful to us, in all these ways, faithful to Israel, faithful to Jesus, faithful to us. How, how could he not then be faithful in the future? And what that looks like, we don't know, and we won't know when it will happen, but we can have faith that it will. There's, a, I think, an underappreciated aspect to the kind of whole meta narrative of Scripture, which is like a deep, deep theology of patience and faithfulness. Um, you read... David's experience in the Psalms and tell me that man does not like every human being wrestle with the why is this happening? Why hasn't this been fulfilled yet? When is it going to happen? Right. And immediately within the same Psalm, right? Every think you can think of dozens of Psalms where it's like the beginning is everything is terrible. Nothing is working. I don't see you. I don't know where you are. You promised this good thing to me, and it seems like the opposite is happening. And then in the same psalm, you know, it's like they, David is having this inner monologue. It's like where we all start, right? Oh, bad things happening. And then he's like, yeah, but I know that like good things are part of it. And he's like working it out himself. It's like, but you did do this for me, and you did do this, and you are faithful here. And then it always ends with this, you know, this acclamation of God's faithfulness his trustworthiness his you know kind of abundance of love and mercy and grace in the midst of our what the heck is going on moments and it and it ends in this sort of you know beautiful um faithful acknowledgement of who god is and it's not trite in the sense of you know like well well we all know at the end god's great and it's going to work out no, it's David saying, I need to say this for myself. Right? At a at an autobiographical level, he's saying, like, this is true, but I need to say it so that I know that it's true, right? So I hear that it's true. And we we, you know, I think that's a really powerful sort of pastoral tool for for some people is by saying those things, it doesn't mean that you you don't feel the ache or the question. Or the reality of of sadness and despair, even like we feel those things, but it's also good to to kind of remind ourselves in those moments. This is true, right? It's like it's like going to mass when you don't feel like it. Like it's still a good thing to do, and the movement of the mass moves you 
in a way that helps remind you of those facts. It helps remind you of who God is. It helps remind you of, of kind of where you are in this, um, in this experience. And I think Christians just have to, we just have to keep doing that. We have to, we have to remind ourselves that that's the case and it all, you know, I don't know, maybe I'm, maybe I'm just like a, eh, it'll all work out in the end kind of person. But at the end of the day, I mean, I'm kind of a, it'll all work out in the end. I think, I think that, oh, go ahead. Bobby. Oh, um, I, you know, just following off his point on the Psalms and particularly with David is you, I think you have a framing of maybe a healthy eschatological tendency there of like, right. He's anointed King, you know, but it's that kingship is hidden for years while he's in exile in the wilderness being hunted by the, the king he's replacing. Um, and like, there's a whole lot of like details in David's early kingship that, that make it, make it very not obvious that he's the anointed king of Israel. Um, and I think that, you know, that helps us to, you know, seeing narratives like that help us to build an imagination for this, maybe what we what sometimes called the inaugurated eschatology, right? Of the, this has been this has been established and it has yet to be consummated or fully manifested or something like that. I've been reflecting on that in Epiphany Tide right here so far is is yeah there there are some things that are true and yet and are being un, made, made known right they're being they're made, made manifest in the in their time um, and and David's kingship is like that right but then you, you think about you know, the Christian is is seated with Christ in the heavenly places as Paul says in Ephesians right and. Um, and yet it doesn't always, right? it doesn't seem, doesn't seem like that, right? To the Ephesians, it's like, no, Artemis is kind of running things around here, you know, and, and we're getting, we're getting completely kicked to the curb. Um, so yeah, the, 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 I think being able to hold that kind of paradoxical um, sense of things where, um, you know, Jesus is Lord and um, things are being subdued to his kingship and, you know, we are seated with Christ on high and our life is hid with Christ on high. Um, and yet, uh, you know, we are still experiencing sorrow, hardship, persecution, tribulation. Um, and these things are all true at the same time. I'm going to attempt to summarize. You all tell me if we can end it here or if we need to keep going. OK, the goal of our eschatology. Is not to plan or figure out so much as it is to situate ourselves within the eternal now and in so doing inculcate in us the theological virtues of faith, hope, and love, faith in that we trust God, hope in that we know that he will redeem the world, and love because all reality is transfigured with that understanding. We see things not only for how they are now, but for what they will be when that redemption is brought into fruition. Any questions, comments, concerns, or complaints? I like that. That sounds like a sweet spot right there. Yeah. Here, here. Okay. Excellent. Very good. Uh, meeting adjourned. All right. So <laughs> we've, solved, the... we've solved another problem, guys. <laughs> moving on to the next item of business, everybody's favorite segment, what we're into uh, Father Hayden and I, I think, should not be able to say the Dallas Cowboys because it should be obvious to everyone. Uh, well, actually, I'm sorry. This is coming out in a couple weeks. So mm. it, it may not be that we're quite as optimistic as we are right now. Yeah. No, I'm I'm, I'm, in, I'm right at that moment. That's that great part of the Cowboys season where I'm ready to get my heart broken again. 
Yeah. Our 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 hopes have been built up despite every game of me fighting those hopes, but now I'm I I'm full out hoping and yep. the, the listeners the play the um end of the regular season just happened. So Cowboys have won the division, we're the number 2 seed. So we won't talk about that. So Father Hayden, what are you into besides that? Uh, I mentioned last time that uh, we re- we reawakened our sourdough, and that's going quite well. Um, uh, so I, I have actually downstairs in the parish kitchen right now. Uh, I have uh, a couple of loaves that are just ready to go into the the shape, the proofing baskets, and uh, and into the fridge for the evening. Um, so that's that's continuing to go well, and being a, a good kind of uh, liturgy throughout the week. Um, uh, additionally. Um, Let's see what else is going on. Oh, I've 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 started uh, we I started watching Ted Lasso actually, uh, which has been recommended to me for years. I'm actually um, shocked you've not watched that earlier. I, that seems like your kind of show. Yeah, you know, I think Bill Lawrence, the producer of it, is someone whose whose work I've appreciated in the past. Scrubs. Uh, I, yeah, specifically with Scrubs and um and uh and but I, I'm I'm you know about half a season into it. I'm and try to take it taste it take it nice and slow, and I'm really enjoying it so far. So I, I've been. Uh, me and uh, Christy have been have been watching that, so we uh, we're really into it right now. Who are you? Do you support a team in actual English soccer? Uh, only like in a poser way. Uh, I feel like the second I say one, everyone like I, I will immediately not be able to put up the right bona fides to support it. So, but like it, I I am always willing to like get on a bandwagon with someone because uh, I do I do like watching soccer. It's just. Mm. It's one of those things that is a world unto itself, and um, I feel like um, the 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 cost of time and attention to do it really faithfully and 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 as it deserves um, is something I, I I'm not usually in a position to make. Um, you can and jump I, on the bandwagon with me. I've got a West Ham United scarf on that chair right behind me. <laughs> I'm already sensing yeah. Father Creighton is about to just like yeah, shut this conversation down. No, <laughs> well, we already, I'll leave it at that with me. Yeah. West Ham, get out of here. We already <laughs> we already like the Cowboys together. We should we should uh, go in on West Ham. That's right. That's this right. is I a, feel like th- one game a week is is what like you know keeps the integrity of my marriage and keeps my mental attention pastorally you know pastorally oriented. Any any sport that requires much more than that, I'm 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 starting to push some boundaries. I told my wife I was recently feeling convicted that I don't watch enough sports. Like there's so much on during the week and we don't really watch it. So like we gotta watch basketball, we gotta watch hockey, and we gotta. <laughs> oh goodness, Father, Father Hayden's been convicting me. Father Hayden, you you have to you have to become a Tottenham fan, uh, so that this can be a Tottenham podcast. I think you're both right. I mean, <laughs> see, this is what I'm talking about. Is like. <laughs> I'm already feeling really anxious right here. You're both, you're both right. You're both right. Please don't hurt me. Allow me to back, you know, squirrelishly out of this room right now. Yeah. I <laughs> love it. Uh, I think, Father, you know, to your point, Father West, that would be fun to do a segment sometime about uh, uh, with uh, with our uh, our respective spouses and being like, get letting them weigh in on, on these things that we're into, you know. <laughs> uh, yeah. Priest wife corner here. That's yes. right. Yeah. Uh, Father Creighton, what are you into? Speaking of corners. Um, I am currently into, uh, I'm into Procreate, which is an app um, <laughs> that allows you to do digital art. Um, it's not procreating. I see you snickering. 
Well, you're having you're having a baby next month, so you yeah. sort of are into that too. Yeah, clearly, you are. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, good. Yeah, we're having a baby. Um, this is not that. This is uh, Procreate, which is an app for for doing uh, digital art. Um, and I've I've been you know uh, an artist my whole life. I love I love drawing and sketching and painting and doing all sorts of things. And uh, I hadn't taken the the leap on digital art yet um but was really interested in it and my wife has uh an ipad pro and i was like you know what christmas is the time and so i snagged an apple pencil and uh you know paid the 12.99 or whatever it is for the for the app and uh i've been absolutely loving it it's so fun it's so intuitive. There's a massive learning curve. I mean, it's really easy to use and in, like as a newbie jump into, um, but to get good at it is like it's a a world of of uh, learning. And I'm I'm loving that process. Um, and uh, I've had a really good time uh, doing it. And um, one of the things that I like doing is uh, like you know, sort of comic booky kind of things like um always been sort of into like doing that but it's not it's not the easiest to do like inking and everything is hard if you make a mistake and with digital art it's like man i can just undo that i can i can do it again i can tweak this or i can tweak that and coloring takes way less time i can just drop things in so i've been having a really good time with it um it's kind of I think most people that do like that write or do art or sing or anything like that, you kind of go through um, ebbs and flows in terms of like creativity and excitement when it comes to art. Um, so it's definitely helped sort of ignite and excite the artistic side of my brain recently, which is a great way to kind of decompress and get that creativity out. Uh, having a good time with it. Father Wes, what are you into? Uh, I'm going to say two things. The first is quick. It's a Paper Republic journal, which Father Creighton turned me on to. Uh, just got it today. And uh, it's it's one of those things you can put three different, well, you can put m more than three, but you can put different inserts in it. So there's three notebooks in it. So I always have one sort of devotional notebook, one notebook for preaching, and one notebook kind of for note taking for lectures and other things. So I've been really into that. It's very well made. And I like the book and the paper quality that comes with that. Um, the other thing I'm into is PGT Beauregard, who was a Confederate general in the Civil War. He was there at the first uh, battle. Well, the, I guess it's not really a battle, but he was the one who ordered them to fire on Fort Sumner that started the war. He was the general at the first Manassas battle and uh, he bounced around. He was almost pretty much at every important event in the Civil War. Um, and I'm not into him because I think he was a great guy. He was not. He was crazy. And in fact, so I'm reading a biography about him uh, called Napoleon in Gray. And he was sort of, he loved Napoleon and basically tried to recreate Napoleon on the Civil War battlefield, which is exactly why he never was a super successful general. But reading it has made me... Um, uh, realized that the South was lucky to last as long as they did with the number of dysfunctional 
personalities that they had. Um, so anyways, it's just been very interesting. I, I read a lot about Ulysses S. Grant and William Sherman and some of the other guys. So I figured I'd switch it up a little bit and uh, and go with uh, one of the Southern generals who I didn't really know a whole lot about. Um, I think he did get into, uh, he did become a Republican after the war and was uh, a little bit more in favor of uh, equal rights and things like that. But um, anyways, it's just, it's an interesting book. And uh, yeah, I'm learning a lot about him and yeah, he was crazy. <clears throat> Very good. Well, listeners, uh, if you would please like and subscribe to us, uh, especially on YouTube. I think our big push right now is on YouTube because we are so close to getting a thousand subscribers. And so you can help us get there. Um, you can usher in the kingdom of the communion of Patreon saints if you just like uh, if you just like our, our YouTube or subscribe to our YouTube. Um, but no matter what, uh, make sure that you're subscribing to us where you get your podcasts and uh, be sure to share us with your friends. Um, I figure to close, we should probably pray the collect for the first Sunday in Advent. That seems like a pretty fitting collect. The Lord be with you. And with, and thy with thy spirit. spirit. Let us pray. Almighty God, give us grace that we may cast away the works of darkness and put upon us the armor of light now in the time of this mortal life in which thy son Jesus Christ came to visit us in great humility that in the last day when he shall come again in his glorious majesty to judge both the quick and the dead, we may rise to the life immortal through him who liveth and reigneth with thee and the Holy Ghost now and ever. Amen. Amen. Amen.